need to uh, press on if we want to finish uh, the subject of church history. And, uh, well, we're not finishing the subject of church history, obviously. Um, our survey of it. And uh, I've had some, some uh, thoughts of expanding upon a couple of points, um, maybe going back and expanding upon a few things that we did in the past that we didn't cover real deeply. I know that um, going to uh, Israel uh, certainly makes me want to possibly do a little bit more on the Jewish-Roman War and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. We didn't really cover that stuff. And um, uh, getting to visit Masada has made me very interested in that stuff. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, we'll see if that happens or, or not. But anyway, uh, we are uh, looking, uh, had started looking. And if you're visiting, no, this is not what we talk about every week. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people think if you're a Reformed Baptist, this is pretty much the Bible study every week. But um we are looking at uh, the life and ministry of John Calvin. We've finally gotten there after weeks with Anabaptists and all sorts of other things. Uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, at Calvin. And um, I believe we had uh, mentioned some of the uh, difficulties in his life. Uh, for example, uh, his ill health, his 27-year headache, um, uh, his wife was also in, in ill health. Um, the fact that he had a son born in 1542, uh, Jacques was his name, uh, and uh, he had lived only two weeks uh, before passing away. And then Idolette herself dies March 29th, 1549. And so... Um, uh, these, you know, we, we saw with Luther that he likewise lost uh, children. It was, it was really the rarity um, for you to have all of your children uh, live to maturity in, in that day. Uh, so many diseases, so many things that we take for granted uh, have been banished from our experience that were still a regular part of things at that time, uh, which in many ways I believe impacted the maturity of people then in that they um, lived in the light of their own mortality in a much greater sense than we do uh, in our society. I think a lot of the truly uh, silly things that consume our society today uh, simply would not exist if we, if we lived in light of the fact that this is a very short, short life. Um, then we had mentioned that uh, Calvin often took up the cause of many persecuted groups, such as the Waldensians, uh, that he had a large epistol uh, epistolary um, uh, literature. There's an entire collection of his letters that he wrote to people that is very educational, very helpful uh, in reading. But then uh, at the end of class last time, uh, we mentioned... The name. I mentioned the meme uh, that floats around and appears every once in a while on my Facebook feed. Uh, something that uh, Sean won't know about very soon, um, but uh, and we'll forget about it very quickly. Um, but um, it's one of those older cartoon type things of two older men arguing, 
And it's a Calvinist and Arminian, and uh, you know the Calvinist quotes John six, and the Arminian quotes Matthew twenty three. And finally, when uh, when the Calvinist says Romans nine, the Arminian cries out, "Servetus!" And then the last panel says, "Sorry, I panicked." Um, and uh, it's funny because it's accurate. It's funny because that's what happens, uh, and has happened many many times. Um, it is interesting to me. Uh, how little most folks on both sides uh, know about Miguel Cervetas. You would think um, that we would all be experts on the subject of Cervetas. I know that uh, back when I was introduced to Reformed theology in seminary, it was right after, right after I graduated from seminary. Um, well, let me back up and tell you the whole story. Um, my first introduction um, to the name John Calvin was in a Watchtower magazine talking about Miguel Cervetas. And so, um, you know, that's not exactly the most positive introduction that you can have uh, in that that context. Um, Right around the same time that I ran into, I discovered that one of my fellow students at Grand Canyon was a hyper-Calvinist. I didn't know what a hyper-Calvinist was. Uh, but I was talking to him about outreach we were doing to Mormons out in uh, Mesa, and he was like, I don't know why you bother doing something like that. If they're the elect, they'll get saved. And he was mocking the uh, the outreach to, to Mormons out there. So both at the same time was sort of a negative thing. Uh, so the fact that I managed to get over that um, says something. But anyway, um, after I shortly after I graduated from seminary, uh, because of the Cervetus stuff, I went to, at that time, they, have these, they used to have these things called public libraries uh, filled with paper books. I mean, I, I know we still have some books that we use for decoration and things like that. Um, but um, uh, in fact, uh, they, had these, these, they had these big things that you'd walk up to and they have these little drawers in them. And you would pull these drawers out, and you had to know the alphabet. Uh, you had to know what letter went before what other letter. And you would look things up in this. They did not, believe it or not, this was, this was before Google. Um, and it was, uh, it was the dark ages. I mean, you show, you show, you show millennials or the I gen or X gen or Z gen or whatever it is they're calling the post millennial, uh, generation, uh, something called a card catalog and they'll, they'll go, what do you store in that? I mean, they would be helpless in a, in a, in a library without the electronics today, sadly. Uh, just like sticking them in a car with a manual transmission. It's just sort of like, what? There's an extra pedal down there. I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, properly identified as the anti-millennial, theft, anti-theft millennial device or whatever it is. It, <clears throat> I could never steal a car that has a uh, manual transmission in it. <clears throat> but, um, which I sort of like. Uh, it's, it's not only a good idea, but I, I enjoyed the manual, but nobody makes them anymore, almost. Anyway. So uh, I went to the Phoenix Public Library and uh, used interlibrary loan. That was another put paper books in envelopes and ship them across the United States so you can read the book and ship it back. Wow, what a, what a concept that was. Uh, you mean it's not found in the first two pages on Google? Who needs it then, you know? 
that's that's how that's how it works today. Um, I read everything I could get my hands on on Miguel Cervantes. I just just read everything I could uh, to try to get a, a meaningful um, picture of this man and what happened uh, in Geneva between Cervantes and uh, and Calvin, and even. Uh, the biographies of Calvin that I had read uh, tended to be surface level and brief on uh, on this particular particular issue. So you'll probably get a little more information than you are accustomed to getting on this particular uh, incident, but that's because there's there's not a lot out there. And what is out there, for example, since I did that, a, a uh, very rabidly anti-Calvin attorney has written a book just uh, turning over everything you can turn over to try to uh, go after uh, Calvin. Um, so even if you do obtain information, very often it's exceptionally um, biased in its, in its uh, perspective. So what is fascinating to me, especially uh, almost none of the uh, accounts point to the fact that Calvin and Servetus, I wouldn't say had a lengthy relationship, but had, were aware of each other's existence for a lengthy period of time. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's uh, what any, let's put it this way, if you ever read an account of this story that does not begin with the fact that Calvin risked his life in 1534. In other words, the year of his conversion, he risks his life to sneak back into Paris to meet with Servetus, uh, who does not show up to the meeting. Then you're reading an account that isn't going to give you a balanced uh, perspective. And that's 99% of them right there on both sides. That's, to me, you have to start there. Um, because Calvin was already in danger. A friend of his had already been arrested. His, he was, the, the authorities were looking at him. There was a, in 1534, there was a great deal of persecution of uh, non-Catholics in France. And... Um, Calvin has made a, a good escape, but somehow, and we're not sure of the, of the mechanisms or what, uh, Servetus had contact with him and asked to meet with him, and Calvin risked his life to sneak back into Paris to meet with Servetus, and Servetus never showed. Why? We don't know. But one thing we do know is Servetus was a brilliant but highly imbalanced man. Um, it is pretty clear uh, that there are people who dance around on the razor's edge of genius and insanity. Um, you may know some people like that, who on their better days just astound you with how insightful and uh, their memories are incredible and and things like that. And then the next day, you're like, okay, you may be one of the smartest people I've ever met, but you're also loopy. Uh, you, you just, 
lack simple common sense. And there are people who go back and forth. You know, today we call them uh, bipolar or manic depressives or whatever else it might be. We'd, we'd subscribe 47,000 different drugs for them. But um, there are people who go back and forth uh, on, that, on that spectrum. And Servetus was a brilliant man. He was a medical doctor. But most people back then, even if you had one particular... See, when we think of a medical doctor, we figure... There's so much, you know, you've got general practitioners and you have cardiologists and, and, and you've got all these uh, fields of specialization and there's so much to know in so many of these areas that in our day, a person who knows a lot in one area, you would expect them to be pretty ignorant in almost any other area because it would take all their thinking just to stay up with their, their particular area. That's not how it was at this time in history. You've heard of the Renaissance man. Uh, a Renaissance man was someone who had a tremendous insight and knowledge all across the breadth of, of man's area of knowledge at that time. So you'd have people who could, who could uh, lecture and speak on medicine and history and and physics and astronomy and, and the whole nine yards. Um, Erasmus was like that. Um, because the, 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 the breadth of human knowledge was not nearly as wide as it is now. Um, and education was not so narrow and focused as it frequently is now. So Servetus uh, is credited by some as one of the first people to identify the circulatory system, the, the blood circulation system in the body in the West. Um, he was a, a, a brilliant physician uh, in that area. But like so many others, um, that led to speculation in theology and philosophy as well. Because... For most people back then, um, astronomy or astrology was directly related to medicine and treating of people. So I mentioned, remember a year ago or so now, when we were talking about uh, the great mortality, which we call the Black Plague today, but that's not what they called it then. Um, every treatise from everybody, including Christians, Christians, Muslims, everybody, Everything that was written on the subject included astrological speculation as to uh, this started when certain planets were in alignment, and so you've got to do this, that, or the other thing, or uh, whatever else it might be. Everything included that because you're, you're thrashing around for some kind of explanation as to why in the world this is happening. And so Servetus for him it would be natural to have uh, a great deal of uh, interest in other areas, which included the subject of theology. And in that area, and of course when you're this smart, you sort of figure you're smarter than everybody else. And so if you're discovering new things about the physical body, well, why not discover new things about theology too? And so people like this are not going to tend to be overly concerned about remaining orthodox. 
and Servetus did not. He denied the doctrine of the Trinity. He denied the eternal existence of the Son. He was That's why the first place that I ever heard of him uh, was in the pages of the Watchtower, because the Watchtower was seeing, you know, sees Servetus as a early proponent, or at least a continuing proponent in history, of their own perspectives, their own beliefs, because the Watchtower denies the Trinity and the eternal existence of the Son as well. Um, not, not in the exact same way that Servetus did, but close enough for government work. And so, obviously, he had to write under a pseudonym when he began publishing his views, which um, it, you know makes sense. He was living, well, he, actually, he, he wrote under his real name, but he lived under an assumed name. So he, he lived under the name Michael Villanueva. Um, the Inquisition, the Roman Catholic Inquisition, upon obtaining some of his writings, uh, condemned him without knowing who he was and put him on the list to be arrested and executed um, as soon as his identity could, could be uh, established. Um, now, here's where things get a little weird. And again, if, if you ever run into articles or anything like that on this subject and it doesn't include this background information, just move on. It's not, not worth the time to look at. Um, seemingly, all the way back in Paris in 1534, Servetus saw in Calvin an intellect equal to or greater than his own. And sometimes people like that become obsessed, stalkerish, of someone that they feel is their equal or they may fear is their superior in intellect. And Servetus simply couldn't leave Calvin alone. He began writing to Calvin in Geneva. And at first, it would just be these letters. Um, and you know how this works. Uh, it happens in social media pretty much every day. You know, the innocent questions, which are not really questions. They're actually hidden objections. They're trying to set you up. Um, and Calvin responds, and it does not take very long in this correspondence for Calvin to figure out who it is he is corresponding with. Um, he's heard of Servetus. Uh, he knows Servetus is wanted by the Inquisition. And it doesn't take long before Servetus is openly in their correspondence denying the Trinity, uh, attacking, uh, attacking Calvin's theology, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. In fact, um, at one point, Calvin sends a copy of the Institutes uh, to Servetus, who sends the volume back with the margins of the volume filled with insulting notes of correction and refutation. Okay, that's the kind of person we're talking about here, all right? Um, we, we don't know why, but Servetus had a obsession with John Calvin. 
So um, I don't know if it was, you know, one of those late night theology discussion sessions or, you know, a day when the headache was really bad or just what, but at some point, uh, Calvin told certain intimate friends of his that he knew who Servetus was, where he was living, and what name he was living under. Well, everybody knew that Servetus was a rank heretic. And here's where sacralism comes back into the picture, and this is why so few people today can in any meaningful fashion analyze what took place in regards to Servetus in any type of fair fashion. Um, here, was, here was the problem. If, if Rome has condemned Servetus as a Trinity-denying heretic, and it's not just based upon rumors, they've got his books. And it's a fact. He denies the doctrine of the Trinity. That makes you a heretic, and that makes you an outlaw in a sacral society. Well, if Rome has condemned him, then if the reformers do not likewise condemn him, what does that say about the reformers in a sacral context? They don't really believe that the doctrine of the Trinity is all that important. They're soft on the central aspects. See, those reformers are heretics too, just like Rome has been saying all along. And so what happens um, is a friend of Calvin's pleads with him uh, to allow him to send documents to the authorities near where Servetus lives. Because if word gets out that the reformer of Geneva knew where this heretic was and refused to give that information to the authorities, even if it was Roman authorities, he denies the Trinity. He's a rank heretic. Can't we all agree on anything? I mean, allegedly, we all agree on the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And so, out of concern that this is what was going to happen, pressure is placed upon Calvin, and Calvin gives in. And Calvin doesn't do it, but... This friend of his uh, takes the documents uh, that demonstrate that Michael Villanueva is actually Miguel Cervetas. Um, where he's living, because if you're having correspondence, if the postman can find you, so can the Inquisition. <laughs> uh, it's sort of like, if the postman can find you, so can the IRS. Well, IRS, Inquisition, about the same thing. Both start with an I. <laughs> um, sort of the modern version of it. So, sorry if there's anybody that works at the IRS here. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, uh, but no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Um, and so Servetus is, uh, is arrested. He is tried and convicted by the Inquisition, rather easily done. I mean, the Inquisition could convict you of anything, but when you've published the books, um, it's, uh, you know, you're not gonna, not gonna have much, uh, much chance. But here's where things get interesting, because honestly, if that, if he had been executed by the Inquisition, I don't know that any of us would have ever known of him other than a footnote somewhere in, uh, you know, the biography of Calvin, uh, if that. Um, 
the night before he is to be burned, uh, he asks to use the outhouse. He's dressed in a nightgown only. And somehow he climbs up on the roof of the outhouse and jumps over the fence and makes his escape from the Inquisition on the night before he is to be executed. Smart guy, like I said. I'm not sure how you get away wearing a nightgown, but there you go. Um, but here's where the insanity part comes in. You're free. You've managed to live years under an assumed name. You're a doctor, so you can get work anywhere. He could have simply, I mean, he's a, he, he speaks multiple languages. He could have disappeared in the woodwork and lived a long and happy life as long as he wouldn't write books and send letters to Calvin. Right? That's what he could do. Guess what he does? No. He makes a beeline to Geneva. He makes a beeline straight to Geneva. I'm talking stalker here, okay? He makes a beeline for Geneva, and not only makes a beeline for Geneva, but he attends the church where Calvin is preaching. He wants, he has decided he must take on his nemesis. He must prove his intellectual superiority to the one man that he has been, has obviously been living in his head rent-free uh, by, at this point, for 20 years. Okay? So, he wants to be arrested. He wants to, he wants the final battle. He just escaped the Inquisition. Now he wants the final battle. There's no other way. How else do you explain? Did he really think he was going to somehow uh, find freedom in Calvin's Geneva? That he was going to be accepted and loved? No. He is there to be arrested and to then take on Calvin. And I think he thought he could out-argue Calvin and end up getting Calvin executed instead of himself. And maybe be the one that frees the Reformation from the shackles of the Trinity and the traditions of Rome and blah, 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 blah. So he is, of course, recognized. Uh, and he is arrested. And this is, um, this is uh, 1552. Calvin still has many enemies in Geneva at this time. Who, Servetus is a very, very convincing speaker, uh, come to him and he enlists them immediately. And for example, uh, has a, because he's also very well trained in law, he has a writ sent to the council uh, that has ultimate authority over him. Uh, Calvin does not have ultimate. Calvin's duty in the prosecution of Servetus is thoroughly theological. It is his job as the lead uh, minister of the council of ministers 
to provide the theological prosecution. Um, but Calvin is not in charge of this. And he has a writ sent to the council to um, have Calvin arrested and put in the same condition that he is in until the end of the trial. And there are lots of people in the council who go, sounds like a good idea, because they're his enemies. This, they've, they've been wanting to get rid of this guy, and this, this might be the best shot that we have, because this guy's brilliant. The Servetus is brilliant. He's, he can really talk up a storm. Um, and so they hope to discredit and embarrass Calvin. Um, the council does not imprison Calvin. The possibility existed, but they did not. They didn't figure that was the best way of handling things. They, they're, both Calvin uh, and Farrell meet with Servetus numerous times. This may have been what Servetus wanted, though I think Servetus wanted it more to be public than, than these types of conversations. Um, but Servetus is unmoved by anything that is uh, being said uh, to him. Um, they do seek to warn him of the law in Geneva in regards to this matter. And Servetus knew what the law in Geneva was regarding this matter. Knew what the law was everywhere in regards to this matter at this point in time in Europe. Um, Geneva writes to Philip Melanchthon, Heinrich Bollinger, and all the other Swiss cantons to seek their advice. And though their replies are carefully worded, um, none of them write back and say, religious liberty, freedom. They all recognize um, that Europe is now aware that Geneva has Michael Servetus, that Servetus has been condemned by the Inquisition, that he escaped, that, that he is defending his anti-Trinitarian heresy. It wasn't just anti-Trinitarian heresy. There were, there were, he was like a, an annihilationist or a con- conditionalist, and, and there, there, there were other, other things that, again, were similar to Jehovah's Witnesses. He just didn't have any Watchtower Wake magazines. Um, but um, Europe is now aware of this, and so Europe is now looking. What will, will this be the first step toward abandoning the faith from Rome's perspective? Will they demonstrate they don't really believe that the Trinity is definitional? Will they really demonstrate that they, are, they want to destroy Christendom? Will this be the first step toward anti-sacralism or an abandonment of sacralism? Even Melanchthon, who we know, you know, we talked about this was, uh, and, you know, Luther's gone at this point. So Melanchthon is the head of the the Lutheran movement. Um, Even Melanchthon recognizes what has to be done in regards to uh, Servetus. They all tell Geneva that that, that, uh, basically how they put it is your laws are just. That's a nice way of saying it. That way you don't have to come out and say, burn the sucker. Um, But they say, your laws are just. 
and uh, uh, this this is what needs to be needs to be done. So Servetus is convicted and sentenced not by Calvin, who did not have any authority to either convict uh, or to determine punishment. He is sentenced by authorities to death by fire. Once again, if you read an article that does not contain the next piece of information, you're reading one of those articles that you wasted your time reading, uh, Calvin and the, the ministers of the Church of Geneva went before the council and asked them to administer death by the sword rather than by fire. Because you might think fire is quick. It's not. Um, as, especially if you use green wood. Um, it can take 20, 25 minutes. Basically, you're roasted. Uh, instead of you know, the fire in a, that you'd think of that just consumes the body suddenly, uh, it's, a, it's a low fire, and you basically cook the person. Um, I won't go any more graphic than that, but you can go much more graphic than that. Um, and that's why, for example, I mentioned if, you've, if you did watch the radicals, uh, you saw them put a little packet around uh, Michael Servetus' uh, neck. Um, that's, yeah, yeah, Sattler. Both started Michael. Sattler's neck, and that was gunpowder, so that when they pushed him into the fire, that would go off and kill him instead of just laying there roasting uh, for a period of time. Um, so the sword's faster. Uh, beheading is pretty instant if you do it that way, uh, but even you know, stroke through the heart's pretty much going to be pretty quick, too. Um, their appeal is rejected. So much for Calvin being in charge of everything. Um, the, um, the council determined that since Rome was going to burn him, uh, they need to do the same thing. And so on October 27th, 1553, uh, Servetus is executed in Geneva, still denying the eternal nature of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I don't remember. I'm pretty certain that it was Farrell that accompanied him, continuing to plead with him even to the end. I don't know that Calvin was in attendance uh, at the actual execution. I, I could check on that, but anyway. Um... There were very few executions in Geneva. The, the law called for it, but there were very few executions in Geneva. But Servetus is, is by far the most well-known. And in comparison to what the Inquisition was doing, there, there was almost nothing at all. But uh, given Servetus, you know, most people didn't have a knowledge of who was being executed, but Servetus had written. He was obviously a very clear a very brilliant individual. And so his death is the beginning of a movement for some level of religious tolerance, at least at first abandonment of the death penalty, maybe just imprisonment or banishment or, you know, it's, it's a slow process over time, but it really does uh, go back to, 
that particular, uh, that particular incident. And so that's 1553. You'll remember that I said that he would struggle. He does not become, for example, a, a citizen um, of Geneva until 1559, and that pretty much starting in 1555, um, Calvin finally has some peace in, in Geneva. Um, and it was partly due to the fact that when his enemies failed to use someone as bright as Servetus to unseat him, the resistance to him gave in, um, and they basically left Geneva. So his enemies become discredited instead of him, um, and so the rest of his life is lived primarily in peace there in, uh, in Geneva. At this point, uh, Calvin founds and runs his, uh, the Genevan Academy, the equivalent uh, of a seminary, in essence. Uh, and men from all over Europe, and especially from England, came and were trained in it. This becomes absolutely central to the growth and founding of Puritanism in, um, uh, in England, uh, and why it's, the Puritans are a bunch of raving Calvinists, uh, is because of that academy and the training that took place there. Um, it's during these years that a guy who is even more interesting, um, a guy whose life is fascinating, but who was so zealous um, that uh, he even gave Calvin more of a headache, <laughs> uh, John Knox from Scotland. Uh, is in Geneva during this uh, period of time. And you know he's going to go back to Scotland and be the reformer of Scotland and scare the queen half to death and uh, scare everybody else half to death, scare Calvin half to death, uh, because he's a little bit on the rambunctious side, shall we say, uh, uh, on many things. Uh, you know, that... The, some of the things that he said about the queen, for example, Calvin was just like, oh, you know. I mean, even Calvin's like, restrain thyself, brother. Uh, thy, thy zeal is commendable, but thy behavior is not, uh, in, uh, in King James English, I would imagine. Um, but uh, Knox is there, and, um, you know, it's during that time period, he says that uh, at that time, Geneva was like heaven on earth. It was the perfect Christian society. Well, I doubt it was a perfect Christian society, but uh, with the enemies gone, I imagine it was uh, quite the interesting place to, uh, uh, to go. We should uh, recognize that also during this time, um, a steady stream of missionaries are trained in the academy there in Geneva, and they basically make a beeline into Italy to their deaths. Um, very little is said about this, unfortunately, and it's interesting. I hadn't heard much about it myself until my one trip to Italy amongst the reform there in Italy, and uh, they 
know all about pretty much everyone um, who at that time period during Calvin's life and for the next number of, uh, you know, well into the next century, Geneva sent many men to martyrdom in Italy because Geneva is not far from Italy. It's very close to the Italian border. Um, and many men were trained there and then went to try to find, found churches uh, in Italy and almost inevitably uh, suffered martyrdom as, as a result. Uh, and, of course, the same thing was true in sending men to the Huguenots, uh, the Reformed Christians in France, where you know, that's sending people home for, for Calvin. That was his home country. He was a Frenchman. And um, so when people talk about Calvinism being the destruction of missions work, uh, wasn't true when Calvin was alive. Um, when Calvin was teaching, uh, the people who were trained under Calvin um, were missionaries and went straight into the, the jaws of death uh, to proclaim the gospel in those, uh, in those contexts. And so uh, that's what's taking place at this particular point in time. Uh, so we might, uh, yeah, I think, I think next time we, it would be pretty easy to finish finish him off with some comments on his lasting uh, legacy and things like that. Uh, but uh, looks like we have run out of time, so let's, uh, let's close our time with a word of prayer. Father, once again, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to look back and to learn from those who've gone before us, both the good and the bad. We ask that we would be good students, that we would... Uh, learn and apply in our own context today. Be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name.